Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. This afternoon's episode is titled The Saturday Afternoon Session of General Conference on April 1st, 2023. This is the Digest Report. Radio Free Mormon watching General Conference so you don't have to. Well, it's Saturday afternoon. Elder Oaks is presiding. Once again, spoiler alert, President Nelson has nothing to say in this session of General Conference. Either he is present on the stand, but he did not speak in the Saturday morning session. He has not spoken in the Saturday afternoon session. One is beginning to wonder if something is up. In the past, he has been the most vociferous president of the church throughout the different sessions of General Conference. It used to be that a session of General Conference could not go by without him inserting himself somewhere in the proceedings, but now he is uncharacteristically silent. I hope his health is okay, but I'm starting to worry about that fact. So President Oaks leads the church in the sustaining of church officers. I listened carefully. I did not hear any kind of protest, any kind of somebody saying no or anything else. It all appeared to go according to Hoyle. I did note that as the camera was panning out over the audience in order to see all the hands rising or being raised at the appropriate time, that there were a great many empty seats in the General Conference Center. Now, I know it's Saturday. I know it's Saturday afternoon. I know that Sunday is the more popular of the sessions, and yet there were maybe 90% capacity. There were at least 10% of the seats that were not filled with anybody, and I hope that by tomorrow they'll have 100%, maybe standing room only by tomorrow. As far as the officers now being released and being sustained, Elder Wilcox did get released, at least for a few seconds, from his calling as the second counselor in the Young Men General Presidency, only to shortly thereafter be promoted to first counselor in the Young Men General Presidency. Elder Corbett, that's Ahmed Corbett, I believe it is, who was the former first counselor in the Young Men General Presidency, is now out of the Young Men General Presidency completely, but he has been promoted to being a member of the 70s. So before he was Brother Corbett, after the session, he is now Elder Corbett officially. Bonnie Corden also is given the boot as the Young Women's President. She was not called as a member of the 70 after that, unsurprisingly. So apparently she's being given a rest as far as her general church service goes. After the sustaining of officers, we had the financial report, and I was all ears to hear from Jared B. Larson, who is the president of the church auditing department, what he would say. Would he say anything differently than has been said before in light of the SEC fine of $5 million that came out just a few weeks ago because the church was hiding its massive amount of billions and billions of dollars in the U.S. stock market from the members of the church by means of filing fraudulent documents with the federal government. I wondered, would there be anything different? But no, it is exactly the same as it always has been. Church auditing, which is an independent organization, although it's within the church, so one wonders how independent it can really be. This independent organization once again says they've looked at everything, everything's A-OK, everything's done according to the right practice, the right policy, the way things are supposed to be done. But 
But because of the SEC ruling, we now know that in 2007 and again in 2014, this same church auditing department talked with EPA after reviewing how they were doing things and said, you know something, maybe you really shouldn't ought to be filing fraudulent reports with the SEC. That's not the best kind of practice in the world. And yet, both in 2007 and again in 2014, when the church auditing department knew that they were violating the rules and the law in the way they were reporting their stock market holdings to the federal government, they said the exact same thing in general conference. Let me make this a little bit more brief. We can't trust anything that this church auditing department says. They always say everything's okay, even when they know it's not okay. They say everything's okay and being done appropriately, even when they know it's not being done appropriately in 2007 and 2014, which means that we've got no idea what's going on. All we know is that no matter how bad things are and how much lying the church is doing to the federal government and how much covering up of their actual holdings is, the church auditor is going to come forward at every general conference and say everything's peachy keen, move along folks, nothing to see here. The first speaker was Elder Renland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Once again, he likes to give these analogies. And this analogy had to do with the Amazon River apparently twice a year because of heavenly forces by which I mean the moon and the sun, there is a tidal wave of some sort that goes upriver on the Amazon. So he uses this now to teach his main message that we need to not go along with the flow of everything else. We will need to go against the flow. And by that, he means to follow the commandments and keep your covenants. Yeah, he's going to talk about covenants. Am I the only person whose eyes start rolling up in my head every time I hear the word covenants in general conference? Well, we have to do everything the church leaders tell us to do. That's what a covenant is. Only then does God bless us. So we have to do everything that church leaders tell us to do before we qualify for all these wonderful blessings that the Lord has to pour out upon us. He even says we have to identify ourselves completely with the covenant. He then talks about taking the Lord's name in vain and how we usually think that's swearing, but actually, actually, when we take upon ourselves the Lord's name in the waters of baptism, if we don't keep our covenants exactly and to the T, then we are taking the name of the Lord in vain in that way as well. Now, here is a quote that he said, which I think is not going to age well. I tried to take this down word for word, though I'm doing it in longhand while he's speaking. Here's the quote. You shouldn't identify yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ unless you intend to represent him well, period, end of quote. Once again, you shouldn't identify yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ unless you intend to represent him well. Well, I wonder how that applies to the first presidency. Do they really feel like they are representing Jesus Christ well when we now know that they were authorizing and sanctioning the false reports made with the federal government by the EPA in order to keep the members of the church in the dark about how much money the LDS church had in the U.S. stock market. Is that really representing Jesus well, I wonder? And if that's the case, and if we apply this teaching from Elder Renland, are the first presidency taking the name of the Lord in vain by acting in such a disgraceful manner? Elder Renlund then goes into the temple covenants, although he does it in rather a generic way. He does cover all of them. 
So that's something that's interesting, that that's getting out there a bit now. I think that they are trying to push back against this idea that they're not really letting people know what's going on in the temple and what they're going to be committing to when they get to the temple. So now they're going to talk about it, even though in somewhat veiled terms, in general conference, apparently in order to brush back that criticism from the plate. And of course, by being strictly obedient to all the covenants we make in the temple, Elder Renlund tells us that we get a whole list of generic blessings that are impossible to measure. And by impossible to measure, what that means is that it's impossible to tell whether you're really receiving them or not. And those are the best kind of blessings to promise. The blessings that people can't really tell if they're receiving. Elder Renlund then goes on to tell a story about his grandparents, whose names are Leander and Lana. They, in 1912, joined the LDS Church in Finland. However, unfortunately and inexplicably, after doing the right thing and joining the Lord's Church and being baptized and becoming active in the Lord's Church, five years after getting baptized, Leander, the grandfather, dies from tuberculosis. And he dies from tuberculosis while Lana, his wife, the grandmother, is pregnant with get this, her 10th child. So they've got 10 children, at least nine children, 10th one's on the way, and the dad, Leander, dies from tuberculosis. How's that for getting blessed for joining the church? Lana then, she persevered through horrific circumstances, and she did that so her family could be together forever. You see, that is the ultimate mind freak here, is that no matter how bad things are and how horrible they are, you just keep doing what you're supposed to do in the church so that your family can be together forever. It's like last kiss, right? Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I got to be good. So I can see my baby when I leave this world. Same idea, right? She's gone to heaven. I got to be good so I can see my Leander when I leave this world. Temple work was done for them, not at the time, not during their lifetimes, because there was no access to a temple. But after she passed away some 20 years later in the 1930s, they finally got the temple work done for them so that now we know that Leander and Lana and all of their many children are finally together again in heaven, in spite of the hell they had to live through on earth. Hell here, heaven later, tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. That's what the LDS Church is about. No, actually, it isn't. It's it's the opposite, isn't it? It's tragedy. It's comedy tomorrow, tragedy tonight. You go through all the tragedy in your life here so you can have comedy and nice times and good times in the next life. My apologies to Stephen Sondheim. The next speaker is Elder Peter Muirs, M-E-U-R-S. I believe he's Australian. He talks a lot about Moroni's promise. He talks about the Book of Mormon. And then he talks about his dad, who told him a lot of scriptures. His dad had a bunch of famous scriptures. Elder Muirs learned about his dad's favorite scriptures. And of course, one of his dad's favorite scriptures was 3 Nephi chapter 11, coming again for its second appearance in General Conference, with Jesus appearing to the Nephites and showing them all the prints of the nails in his hands 
and his feet. They get to come forward. They get to touch him. It's a big coming forward and touching Jesus fest. He also talks about how Jesus shares scriptures with the Nephites while he's visiting them. He doesn't mention exactly what those scriptures are, but we know that there is Isaiah that is mentioned to them. I believe it's Isaiah 53, which is from Deutero-Isaiah, which the Lehites would not have had on any record when they left Jerusalem at 600 BC, Deutero-Isaiah having been written sometime after they left Jerusalem, which poses a problem for why it is showing up in the Book of Mormon. No, wait, it doesn't because Jesus is coming over. Jesus is coming over and he's inserting himself into the narrative. Jesus knows what's written on Deutero-Isaiah so he can tell the Nephites and they can write it down. That's how this piece of Deutero-Isaiah appears in the Nephite record. There's no historical anachronism there. Similarly, there's two chapters from Malachi that Jesus shares with them, chapters three and four, if I'm recalling correctly. And once again, those, of course, were written hundreds of years after Lehi left Jerusalem. But once again, no problem historically because Jesus is coming over and he's quoting it. And actually, he quotes Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, and Malachi in the best English possible, which we know is the King James Version of the Bible, which Joseph Smith had in his possession as he was translating the Book of Mormon. So, no problem historically there. Elder Muirs goes on to talk about how Jesus in 3rd Nephi then asks for all of those who are lame or sick or afflicted or blind or dumb or anything to be brought forward and he heals them. He heals every single one of them because of the compassion that he feels for them. He's reading this from the Nephite record as he's speaking in general conference. But where on earth is this going to lead, one wonders. Because we have general conference session after general conference session talking about general conference death march. The general conference death march. Oh my gosh, I almost forgot to identify Leander, the grandfather of Elder Renlund, as number three so far in our general conference death march. He was the one who joined the church and as a blessing for that, got tuberculosis and died five years later. Maybe he had tuberculosis before he joined the church. I don't know. Regardless, it doesn't appear that any priesthood blessing was able to help him out. Now, getting back to Peter Muirs, who's just told us about Jesus having compassion on the Nephites, so he heals all of their sick. And then one wonders, why isn't he healing anybody else anymore today? Does that mean it's because he no longer has compassion toward us? I mean, that would be the logical conclusion. If he heals because he has compassion in the Book of Mormon, but today he doesn't heal, is it because he doesn't have compassion? Well, he's not going to answer that question. He's going to leave us hanging on that, and he's going to shift to a personal story of some time ago when he and his family were out having a day at the beach and having a good time. They get in the car, they're heading home, and Peter Muir's falls asleep at the wheel, causing a horrible accident, a head-on collision with another car. His wife has a broken leg and a broken sternum. The daughters are in shock, but their five-month-old son is unresponsive. Apparently, he's unconscious because he's going to come to in a few minutes after a priesthood blessing because the daughters say, give the kid, his name is Jerem, a good Mormon name, by the way, give Jerem a blessing. So now Peter Muir's having just caused this collision by falling asleep and he's lying on his back, places Jerem or Jerem on his chest and gives him a blessing. He says, by the time the ambulance arrived 40 minutes later, Jerem was conscious. So he goes from being unconscious to being conscious. I'm glad that his kid did not die. I'm glad that there weren't any horrible injuries. I mean, above and beyond the broken sternum and leg of his wife. And I'm glad that everybody was eventually okay. I see this as an attempt to put 
a priesthood blessing that actually works in the context of general conference and in the context of this story, I'm going to give it partial credit. I think that a kid who is unconscious, who later on regains consciousness, does not constitute necessarily a miracle just because a priesthood blessing was given in between. You know, it's better than what we usually get, so I'm going to give that I'm going to give that partial credit. I'm going to give it an E for effort. But then Elder Muirs talks about the guilt he felt about this, about falling asleep behind the wheel. He felt this for years, and I can understand why. I'd feel horrible about it too if I were he. By the way, I want to say that Elder Muirs should get credit for being this open, to for being this quote-unquote vulnerable about something horrible that happened in his life that you know you don't usually want to talk about, especially in public, in general conference, in front of the world. I give him props for that because I think there's a lot of people who have guilt feelings for doing dumb things that have hurt other people who can really relate to this. And he suggests that Jesus will heal your guilt. If you take your guilt to him, Jesus will heal your guilt. And apparently Jesus has done that for him as well. Next, we get to Elder Randall Bennett, who's going to talk about patriarchal blessings. And he, as a young man, had parents who were not having the best of marriages. Apparently, they were always on the verge of breaking up. By the time he's in primary, they're telling him it's eventual. It's inevitable that they're going to split and have a divorce. And it's going to be up to him to choose which one of the parents he's going to go with. Now, that is actually emotional child abuse, in my opinion, to take a kid that young and telling him that he's going to have to choose which parent he's going to go with. That's not the truth. That's not the way the law operates. And I, having been in a similar position on a couple of occasions in my lifetime as a kid, I certainly relate to him and I know the kind of pressure and anxiety that that will give to a kid. And he says, indeed, that he suffered from lots of anxiety. I can understand that. Well, now he's going to talk about his patriarchal blessing, how he got it shortly after he turned 12, and he studies it. He becomes really, really infatuated with his blessing. He'll read it and study it every day, multiple times a day. And it was very important to him to give him some kind of place, some kind of foothold that he could hang on to with God loving him, with God being the constant parent for him that he could depend on and rely on and know that he was loved of God, even though he's going through all of this turmoil as a child. He also reads from the General Handbook of Instructions about patriarchal blessings, where it is stated in black and white that patriarchal blessings should be given to people when they're young, before they have made a lot of the important decisions in their life. Now, of course, the reason they want to have members get these patriarchal blessings when they're young before they've made these decisions is so that they will know which decisions to make as they approach them. When they are mission age, if they're a boy, they'll know you've got to serve a mission. They'll know you've got to get married in the temple. They'll know you've got to be committed to the gospel. They'll know you've got to fulfill your callings. They'll know you've got to have children and raise them up in righteousness and all the things that are in every single patriarchal blessing that probably has ever been issued in the church. All of these things are a template, which is why these blessings end up sounding so much alike and end up mirroring each other to a large degree. He tells us that his parents finally did divorce, but by then his patriarchal blessing had become his personal liahona. So it helped him get through his parents' divorce. I think anything that helps a kid get through a parent's divorce is good. So I do want to say that much. He then encourages the youth to get a patriarchal blessing and he encourages everybody who's received one to read it frequently. So that's the end 
of his talk. We now go to Craig C. Christensen, that's CCC of the 70, who's going to talk about repentance and how repentance brings joy. One of the startling things that he said was that joy is not feelings of happiness. Joy is not feelings of happiness. So happiness is what the outside world gets. Inside the church, you get joy. But if joy isn't happiness, I'm not exactly sure why I should be wanting it so much. He nevertheless makes it clear that this joy only comes through keeping all the commandments of God, through being righteous, through being worthy. And once again, with this whole SEC, Securities Exchange Commission backdrop in the order that just dropped a few weeks ago with the $5 million fine that had to be paid. Once again, it makes me think, why is it that you're telling me to be righteous and that's the only way to have joy when the first presidency who are seated right behind you have been caught with their hand in the cookie jar lying to the federal government in order to conceal how much money the church has in the U.S. stock market. It reminds me of the line from Hamlet where Ophelia is talking to her brother Laertes, who's about to head off to Paris. She says, But good, my brother, do not, as some ungracious pastors do, show me the steep and thorny path to heaven, whilst, like a puffed and reckless libertine himself, the primrose path of dalliance treads and wrecks not his own reed. That's from memory. I hope it's correct. By the way, that last line, who wrecks not his own read, means who heeds not his own advice. Don't tell me to be righteous while you're gone, like some pastors that we have do, while they're off doing all sorts of things that are violating the advice that they're giving me. See, that's what she's saying. And this is the reason that line comes up to my Memory is because that's what I feel like the leaders of the church are doing. They are showing me the steep and thorny path that leads to heaven, but they're disregarding that themselves. They're doing whatever it is they want in secret while telling me I have to be righteous. And then when their unrighteous acts are made not secret because it was reported in the news a few weeks ago, Now, what are they going to do about it? Well, they're just going to ignore that. They're going to pretend that didn't happen. They're going to say, as far as they're concerned, that issue is closed. And they're going to move on like nothing happened. And they're going to hope nobody else mentions it. Well, I'm going to mention it. This is hypocritical behavior for them to tell us to follow the commandments while they themselves are violating the law. And then to have one of their leaders, many of their leaders actually, Come forth in general conference and tell us that we have to be strict in our observance of the covenants and the commandments while not even mentioning the fact that they have been caught violating those same covenants and commandments. That strikes me as bad faith all around. I didn't think I could lose more respect for the leaders of the church than I have since the SEC revelation, but yes, I have. So there you have it. Going back to the talk by Craig Christensen. What it basically sounds like is that he's reading a bunch of scriptures that have the word joy in it. He went to the topical guide. He looked up the word joy. He grabbed a bunch of scriptures. And now he's peppering his talk with all of these scriptures. The one thing that he does is he quotes President Nelson. Now, basically, everybody has quoted President Nelson up to this point. There's going to be an exception to that here in a second, which is interesting. But he's going to quote President Nelson. And the way he's going to quote him is President Nelson quoted a passage from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that deals with joy, okay? So apparently President Nelson did that at some point in the past. But now, Elder Christensen is going to quote that same scripture, 
All he's doing is quoting the scripture. President Nelson quoted the scripture before. So instead of just quoting the scripture, he's going to say, as President Nelson said in quoting this scripture from Hebrews, and then he reads the scripture from Hebrews. He's putting President Nelson's name in there, so hopefully it will count in his benefit, I guess, as another time he's quoting President Nelson when all he's doing is quoting from Hebrews. This is how far this craze about quoting President Nelson has been taken by some members of the church in their general conference talks. The next speaker is Elder Evan Schmutz. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not sure if that's Yiddish or something, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is. So, Elder Schmutz. <laughs> I'm sorry. Elder Schmutz. It's S-C-H-M-U-T-Z. I can't help it. Elder Schmutz. Elder Schmutz starts off by saying he envisions Nephi of old writing with his stylus on the gold plates. He envisions Nephi sitting at his desk. I had no idea that the ancient Nephites had desks, but apparently now that's a fact since it's been said in general conference. And Nephi writing with his stylus on the gold plates about the gospel, the doctrine of Christ, which is basically the first four principles and ordinances of the gospel, faith, repentance, baptism, and gift of the Holy Ghost. And you always got to add in the fifth one, endure to the end, because that's so important. I remember learning about this from the missionaries in 1978 and how they would talk about the first four principles and ordinances of the gospel, but they always added endure to the end because it's so important that we understand salvation doesn't come just through these ordinances and principles. We also have to endure to the end. We have to keep on keeping on. There's no point at which we get released from the shackles of obedience to LDS church leaders. Not in this life anyway. Not if we want to have true joy in the next life and be with our families in the next life. Oh, Elder Schmutz is also the first mention that we have of getting off social media. He makes a point of saying that in order to be happy, in order to have faith in Christ, in order to draw closer to Christ and all of those good things, we need to have less social media in our life. That social media gives place in our lives for the false philosophies of men. So if we don't want false philosophies of men, you pay attention in general conference and you stay the hell off social media because God only knows what you might be learning in social media nowadays about the church. Obviously, the church doesn't want you learning about the church from social media and for good reason, I think. Oh my gosh. Now he gives this absolutely awful story about this couple named Travis and Casey. Travis, the husband, Casey, the woman, they get married in 2007. They find out all of these horrible, horrible things. Well, first off, there's this cute part, right? Is that they're married in a civil ceremony. Travis is the non-member. Casey is the inactive member. But then Travis ends up joining the church, getting baptized and reactivating his wife, Casey. So now everything is wonderful. They're both active members of the church. But... Travis ends up with a bad medical condition that he comes down with, which involves periodic clusters of tumors growing on his organs. And Elder Schmutz says specifically that this illness is incurable. Honestly, I cannot believe that any holder of the Melchizedek priesthood would ever call any illness incurable. That just seems heresy to me. He is saying that the power of the priesthood has limits when it comes to healing. And this one, sorry, it's off the charts. If the doctors can't heal it, then the priesthood can't heal it either. Well, that kind of makes sense, I guess, when you think about it the other way, since usually the only way the priesthood works is when the doctors can heal and cure things. 
and then credit is given to the priesthood for what the doctors do. But this condition that Travis has is incurable. It's going to lead to his death. Now, while Travis has this incurable illness, Casey, his wife, has her own disease that involves a narrowing of her vision until she's going to be blind. So at one point, Elder Schmutz talks to Casey. <laughs> Elder Schmutz talks to Casey. It's the name, I'm telling you. I can't get past the name. Elder Schmutz talks to Casey, and Casey says that in spite of the fact that she's looking at going blind and her husband dying and her having to fend for herself, being blind, by the way, she also has to have a, a seeing eye dog at this point and take care of everything, the kids, everything, that in spite of all this, she's never been happier in her entire life. Yes, that's what Elder Schmutz actually says that Casey said. She's never been happier in her life. She has a guide dog. She can't drive. She's looking at her husband dying and leaving her alone, but she is just full of joy. Actually, the word he uses there is they are content. They are very content because they trust the doctrine of Christ and they are faithful. Now, as unbelievable as this story is to me personally, I also identify it as a story that is supposed to have an ulterior message to all the other members of the church. The story is designed to have a horrible, horrible thing happen to this married couple who've been doing so wonderful. They're in the church, they're young, and the husband's got this terminal illness. He's going to die. Oh, no priesthood, by the way. That's going to be another general conference death march. He may already be dead by now. I'm not sure. But if not, it will come to pass so that's going to be number four for him. Let's say number five. It's not a death march for his wife, Casey, but obviously her blindness can't be healed either. Jesus did it in the New Testament, like John chapter nine, I think is an account of it. But my gosh, nope, no priesthood today. Jesus may be running this church. This church may have his power, but it can't do anything to heal either Casey or Travis. So I'm putting them down as numbers four and five in the general conference death march. Once again, Casey is just blind. I shouldn't even say that together. She's just blind. She's not dying from it. But I think that falls under the same rubric. So if you want to include it as number five, you can. Number four, definitely for Travis. I'm going to include Casey as number five with her blindness, which is not cured by priesthood blessings. But getting back to the purpose of the story, it is a message to everybody else to give an illustration of this couple who has the most horrible things happen to them, and yet they are happy, they are joy, 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 they're content, they're continuing faithful in the gospel. And the message is that if you don't have stuff happening as bad as this, who are you to complain? Who are you to pull back from attendance? Who are you to not continue faithful? If Casey and Travis can do it under their circumstances, then you sure as hell can do it under your circumstances. You are left without excuse. You must continue. You must push forward. You must remain faithful and continue in the church. The next talk is given by Benjamin de Hoyos, who is obviously a Spanish speaker as his first language. He has a very thick accent. It was sometimes difficult for me to understand, but I know and recognize it is his second language, and he's doing a lot better in English than I could do in Spanish. His talk is basically about temples. He talks about how wonderful they are. He talks about the Kirtland Temple dedication. He talks about Elijah coming to the temple. He talks about the spirit of Elijah. He talks about the genealogy. He talks about everything that you would expect in a very basic, boring talk about temples. And I will tell you, it's boring enough when you can understand it. It's even more boring when you can't understand a lot of what the speaker is saying. Now, the last speaker, surprisingly, is not, once again, President Nelson, but it is Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf. 
Elder Uchtdorf gives a lengthy talk, at least by general conference standards, of around 15 minutes, and not once, not once, does he quote President Nelson. I was paying attention, I'm pretty dang sure, he didn't quote President Nelson. He may not have quoted any other general authority. What he's talking about is parents and the parenting of children and involving Jesus Christ and revelation in how we parent our children. He starts it off with a story about a dad who's a member of a bishopric who's going to a meeting. And his little girl comes to him with a book of Book of Mormon stories and asks her dad to read to her while she's in bed so she can go to sleep. But her dad says, sorry, I have to go to this meeting. And the girl says, why do you have to go to the meeting? And her dad says, because the bishop needs my help tonight. And the girl says, well, doesn't the bishop have a dad who can read him bedtime stories? There's a laugh in the audience. It's a joke, okay? It's not a bad joke. But what I'm wondering is, is the dad going to realize, wait a second, being a dad to my daughter is more important than my duty to go to a meeting with the bishopric in the church. No, that doesn't happen. The story is not revisited. Obviously, he goes off to his meeting. And what this ends up underscoring to me is that everything that President Uchtdorf says after this about trying to be good parents and involving God and being a parent and spending time with your kids is all window dressing. It's all the same old spiel we get from the church leaders about being good parents and being involved with our kids when actually the reality of the church is you put the church first. You go to your meeting with the bishopric before you stay home with your little girl to read her a bedtime story. Now, obviously, there's going to be times when you can't be in the home being the parent. People have to go off to work. People have to go on trips. I understand. But over and over and over again, this church talks about putting family first. But when it comes down to the reality of the situation and the example that President, oh, sorry, not President anymore, Elder Uchtdorf uses, the moral of the story is if there's a conflict between the church and your family, you pick the church every time. Elder Uchtdorf revisits the sentiment that it is the parent's job to teach their children to keep all of the commandments, which means to do everything that the LDS church requires of them. Again, there's the implicit guilt. If the parents are responsible to teach the children to do everything they're supposed to do, and the children end up falling away from the church, well, whose fault is it? Obviously, it's the parents. They didn't do a good enough job of teaching those kids in the first place. Elder Uchtdorf even makes the observation, and I'm glad he makes the observation, that there's no family that's perfect. A lot of times we get the ideas that people who get up in church and they talk about their families, oh, they've got a perfect family, but mine isn't. Well, he says everybody's family is imperfect. Everybody's family has problems. That's an illusion that is created sometimes in the church. And God bless Elder Uchtdorf for at least saying that much. One place where I thought he went too far the other way, though, is saying that you can parent your children with the help of Jesus by revelation because Jesus knows what it is those kids know. And he also said that there's a lot of times when we have relationships with our kids that are strained. And that's the case pretty much everywhere, especially when those kids become teenagers. Then he goes too far, I think, in saying that Jesus can heal those relationships because I don't really know how that works in real life. Jesus healing a relationship between a parent and a child. If it happens, wonderful. I'm kind of thinking it's probably about as likely as a priesthood blessing to heal somebody. But regardless, the problem is, is that when those 
relationships are not healed, if you believe this line of thinking, then what does that mean? It means, once again, the parents were not good enough to get the revelation from Jesus that was promised to them by Elder Uchtdorf, the revelation from Jesus that they needed to heal that relationship. Once again, it is all designed to make the parents feel bad if they don't have successful children and if they don't have successful relationships with their children. Well, that brings us to the end of the Saturday afternoon session of General Conference. That's about all for now. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. (laughs) 